Some of you may know that this past Wednesday, February 17th, was Random Acts of Kindness Day. A holiday started actually by Josh DeYoung from New Zealand. And if uh, you were involved in doing some random act of kindness for someone else, I congratulate you. I'm sure you were blessed in doing it, and the person that received that act of kindness was no doubt blessed as well. But I got to thinking about that phrase, random acts of kindness. And since I'm not an expert in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, I looked up the word random, and here's the definition. Occurring without a definite aim, reason, pattern, or purpose. Today in Matthew chapter 6, we're going to see in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that our acts of kindness toward others, our giving for the cause of God is never to be random according to that definition. Instead, according to Jesus' own teaching, it is to be done with a definite goal and a divine purpose. Those who seek to live the God life want those acts of kindness for someone else to be made in the name of Christ, to exalt and lift up and honor Him as we help someone who's made in the image of God. I want to look at that subject today with uh, three lessons that we're to learn from Matthew chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 4, and then along with it, verses 19 through 24. Jesus says this in verses 1 to 4 about the practice of giving. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. When therefore you give alms, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give alms, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. Some people have referred to this part of the Lord's message as the Sermon on the Amount. But it really has little to do with a dollar figure as much as it does with having a spiritual focus on our giving, on giving out of a heart of love for God and for others. The first century Jew of Jesus' day had three acts of service that they thought were very important. Almsgiving, which we're talking about this morning, prayer, and fasting. We're going to zero in on that matter of Almsgiving. Almsgiving comes from the Greek word for mercy or compassion. And it has to do with helping the less fortunate. And here in this passage, Jesus is contrasting that kind of giving with what the Pharisees were doing, which was a self-focused public display, all for the purpose of being seen by others. Speaking of sermons on the amount, someone once said sermons on giving are like having a root canal. 
is painful but necessary and even helpful in the long term. And my prayer has been all week as I've worked on this message that it will be helpful to all of us. And if there's any pain involved, that it will move us beyond the root of the problem. Jesus tells His followers, as you'll see in verse 1, beware of doing your righteous acts just to be seen by onlookers. Please notice the word practice, however. Beware of practicing your righteousness. Giving to the Lord's work, helping people in need, is something that we ought to be practicing It should be regularly practiced by those who are living the God life. And notice also in verse 2 that Jesus says, when you give to the poor. Not if you give, but when you give. Jesus is expecting that giving and helping those less fortunate will be part of the heart of those who follow Him. That it will be a consistent part of our living and giving. In other words, Jesus is saying to us, the practice of giving is right, but the production is not. When I say production, I'm talking about the Pharisees. He calls them in this passage hypocrites. And when he talks about righteousness here, I want to define that word because we need to understand its context. I'm talking about doing something that is part of the will and character of God Himself. In other words, God is a giving God. God is righteous as to His character. And He's also a giving God. The Hebrew word, interestingly, for both righteousness and almsgiving is the same word. In Hebrew, it's zedakah. You don't need to remember that. But remember that it means the same thing in Hebrew, either righteousness or almsgiving, helping the poor. Our righteousness should look like a passion that really reaches out to others in need. And our giving to those in need should look like righteousness. It goes either way. The point that Jesus is making here this morning is an important point. And that is that our giving should not be announced or advertised. I read a story about some vandals down in Miami who cut down six huge royal palm trees on a major boulevard. The city wasn't sure if they wanted to pay the kind of money it would take to replace those trees, especially ones that large. But then someone donated six more trees even bigger. And not only did they donate them, they had them planted. So the city wasn't out any money at all. The old ones were 15 feet high, and they made an interesting surround to a billboard that was dedicated to Fly Delta, the airlines. The new ones were 35 feet tall, and they completely blocked, totally blocked the sign. Guess who the new donor was? Eastern Airlines. (laughs) Jesus is saying to us, don't give for the applause. Totally disregard the praise of other people. 
Our giving should be God-focused. Do it for Him, your Father in Heaven, and He will reward you, repay you. It's very clear here that Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. That's been on His mind through this entire Sermon on the Mount. But here, instead of calling them by their proper title, the Pharisees, He calls them hypocrites. The word hypocrite literally means an actor. Someone who's playing a role on a stage. The Pharisees were excellent at being actors. They wore the mask of concern for other people. But what they really wanted is not to help those in need. They wanted praise. They wanted to be recognized as caring men. Jesus speaks here of sounding a trumpet before you give. We have no record of anybody actually doing that out on the streets or in the synagogues as Jesus refers to it here. It may talk about, it may refer to the sound of a shofar that was made on those times when giving could be done in the temple itself. In the temple there were 13 metal baskets around the walls of the inside of the temple that were dedicated to different kinds of giving for different purposes. That may be what's referred to here. But it's more likely simply a symbol, an illustration of self-recognition. While there may not be a record of Pharisees having someone blow a trumpet for them and pay them a little money on the side to blow a trumpet when they're ready to give, what we do have record of is Pharisees out on the streets and in the synagogues making a big show of their giving as they would take their money and announce to everyone, hey, I'm giving some money now, by the way, and please notice this is a $100 bill. Please notice that. I'm giving this to the poor. That's what Jesus is talking about here. About blowing your own horn. Drawing attention to yourself for how sacrificial you are. These hypocrites wanted to turn heads, but they didn't really care about touching hearts. There's a big difference. Hypocrisy through material giving can mean one of two things. It can mean giving the wrong impression to other people that I have given when I didn't actually give, or deceiving myself into thinking that when I give, people will notice and praise me. That's the ultimate hypocrite. Really, the Pharisees were buying votes. Kind of like politicians a little bit. They were buying votes. They were buying the praise of men as they would give. Here's what Jesus says about them, the Pharisees, the hypocrites, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 3. All that they tell you, Jesus says, observe and do, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things but they do not do them. Isn't that interesting? Jesus knew them very well. He knew their hearts as much as their actions. They say things, but they do not do them. They say, oh, we love people, we want to help people, but they really didn't want to help. 
Last week we read about Jesus' command in verse 48 of chapter 5 to be perfect. And in that case we talked about it being wholehearted and mature and fulfilled and living out the purpose for which God made you. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. But hypocrisy is the exact opposite of that. It's ignoring what God made us to do to be loving, caring, helping people and instead doing it for self. Externalism versus a heart burden for others. The Pharisees even taught, actually taught, and the rabbis as well, that external acts of kindness could buy you a place in heaven. Here's an actual quote from the Mishnah which the Jewish rabbis wrote and used. And I quote, For one gift given to the poor, a man shall receive heaven. No. Not according to the Bible. That may be what the rabbis taught. That may be what the Pharisees said. But that's not what the Bible taught. That's not what the Old Testament indicated. That's not certainly what Jesus taught. Jesus instead said in John 14.6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me, not by giving a certain amount of money to help the poor. The Pharisees were into this whole image thing. They wanted the, the image of being a generous person, but it was all a facade. No wonder Jesus teaches here that the praise of men, such as it is, is all the reward they're going to get. That's it. They're not going to get any reward from heaven. God is not going to reward them. Interestingly, the phrase that's used here for they will they have received their reward literally means they have been paid in full. It's a business term. They've been paid in full, stamped by the local bank. That's all you're going to get. The praise of men. You're not going to get God's praise. By the way, the Bible is abundantly clear that there are rewards for the faithful Christian, for the person seeking to live the God life. And the Bible teaches that it's not wrong to be desiring rewards from God. But only if we remember that the reward is not necessarily material. Or financial. It is, however, real and eternal. Remember what Jesus taught in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 concerning those who were persecuted, who were blessed because they were persecuted for Christ. He says in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 12, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Not necessarily your reward here on earth, but your reward in heaven. It's a great reward. When Jesus instructs us here in these verses not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing, He's talking primarily about giving in secret. But it brings up an interesting point. And I need to address it this morning. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 15, verse 16, rather, Jesus says, Let your light shine in such a way before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That sounds like a contradiction to what he's now saying. 
Do it in secret. Don't do it before men. Is it in fact a contradiction? No. The difference is this. Shining our light and doing good works before men is to be done in such a way that God gets the glory. Not so that we get noticed by others. Another way to put it is this. Show your good deeds when you're tempted to hide your faith, but hide your good deeds when you're tempted to show your own personal righteousness. It's a good way to think about it. So the difference is God on display or self on display. That's the difference. The wrong motive is to be noticed. The right motive is so that God gets the glory. So Jesus would tell us, and this is my paraphrase now, beware of doing the right things for the wrong reasons. Don't change the doing, change the motivation. Don't give with one hand while you pat yourself on the back with the other. Ignore the pull to prime time performance. And instead, look for prime opportunities to give and bless others to the glory of God. It all comes down to a proper understanding of what things in life are of supreme value and what things are of temporary value. That's our second lesson today. Verses 19 through 21 here in chapter 6. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Three times in three verses you see that word treasures. Singular or plural. Treasures. In those days, if you were a person of some wealth, it was noticed by the stash of clothing that you had, or food, or precious metals and jewels. Those were kind of the three biggies. None of those things, Jesus says, are going to last forever. Not one of them. Instead, Jesus was, is teaching us, invest in things that will last for all of eternity. Treasures of the heart. Spiritual treasures. Treasures that have value to God and will benefit us and benefit others spiritually. We've all heard that saying, you can't take it with you. And that's true. But what Jesus is teaching is that you can send it on ahead of you to heaven where it will be kept safe and will honor God. In those days, for example, you uh, couldn't rely on a wardrobe that would last for years because moths could eat it. The word rust in our package uh, passage literally means to rot. And it's talking about food that would rot and spoil because of bugs or worms. This is back before they had all of the high-tech containers that many food storage people have today. And your prized gold or jewels, many people would bury them under the floor of their house. But in those days, their houses were generally built out of bricks 
made from mud. And so when it talks here about thieves breaking in, the word thieves literally is translated diggers. Because people would wait for you to go on vacation and then they'd dig through the wall of your house, which was just mud anyway, and dig in the floor of your house and find your gold and your jewels and steal it. Even today, people with great sums of money, like people who've won the lottery, will tell you how quickly it can be all gone. Nothing less of a material nature. Sometimes we even use that phrase gold digger, don't we, to refer to someone who married up so that they could somehow end up with that mate's hard-earned money. Why is it that we hoard things? Why do we store up so many things? Why do we have so much stuff? One reason is for security reasons. If I have enough money, I feel secure. If I have enough retirement saved up, I feel secure. Another reason is personal worth. If I'm worth a million dollars or a billion dollars, then I'm somebody. People will look up to me. May also be because of power. In our society today, wealth equals power. And then it also may be because of pleasure. If I have enough, I can buy whatever I want to buy that I can enjoy and get pleasure from. So Jesus in this passage is talking about two treasures one that fades and one that lasts. Jesus wants his followers to reject extravagance. He wants us instead to discover what really God wants us to do with our money. He wants us to discover those who are truly needy. And he wants us to realize that there is another world after this one. A place for people living the God life called heaven. And there we will enjoy not dollars and cents, but the sense that we have it all in God. And we live in His very presence. The preacher Andrew Murray wrote, We ask how much a man gives. God asks how much a man keeps. As in, keeps for himself. We need to understand the art of giving. Many people today struggle with the issue of possessions. And especially with setting aside a tithe or offerings for people with need around us and around the world. Setting aside a tithe because that's what God requires of us. Jesus wants us to invest in or store up things that will last for eternity. According to Scripture, my understanding of Scripture, there are three things that will last forever. God, because He's eternal, He's always been there, always will be there. God's written Word. We saw a couple of weeks ago that His Word is going to last even when heaven and earth pass away. And the other thing is the souls of men. People. So if we invest in them, God and His written Word and the souls of people, if we give honor to God for who He is, if 
we are obedient to His Word about tithes and offerings, if we have a vision to reach the lost world of men and women, giving them the Gospel, giving them the Word of God so they can understand how to be saved, then we can enjoy both here and now and for all of eternity those eternal rewards. It's interesting when you study the giving of evangelical Christians. Researchers uh, recently revealed that over the past five years, evangelical Christians have given an average of 2%, 2% of their income to the Lord's work. Interestingly, the level of giving during the Great Depression of the 1930s was 3%. <laughs> We're certainly not in that same condition now. And yet the giving has gone down. Many people have suggested that we open our checkbooks and see where our money is actually going. Jesus tells us, wherever that is, that's where your heart, your passions, your desires will follow and expand. People often say, put your money where your mouth is. Jesus says, put your money where you know God wants your heart to be. And then God will bless you and reward you. If we'll do that, God will meet every need we have and we'll never lack for being taken care of by our giving Father in Heaven. And that goes for churches too. As a congregation, we need to have a vision beyond just giving a little bit here and there. We need to take great steps of faith and trust that God will provide and that that vision will become a reality. Gloria is an avid reader, as most of you know, and uh, she keeps me up to date on books that I need to be reading. And while I've never been much of a reader, she can tell you that the last year, and so far into this year, I've been reading more and more and more. Right now I'm reading a book by Mark Batterson called Draw the Circle. And just this morning, when I put this in my notes, I read this, the God who gives the vision is the God who makes provision. I like that. The God who gives the vision is the God who makes provision. So if He lays it on our heart as a church family to step out in faith and do more than we've done in the past 13 years, He'll provide. He'll provide through His people, but He will provide. That's the very nature of God. I'm so thankful that uh, a little over two years ago we made a decision at our annual meeting. We have another one of those coming up next week. We made a decision at our annual meeting to start put setting aside 10% of our weekly offerings to be used for missions. And uh, so far we have a little over $11,000 set aside for missions, and I'm excited about that. But the other thing you need to know, and I'll say more about this at the annual meeting, is that during that period of time, our uh, giving has gone up. In the year 2015, our giving was the most it's ever been in the 13-year history of the church. I praise God for that. But there are some Christians who don't really believe that that's true, that the God who gives the vision is the God who makes provision. 
The reason I say it is because many churches really struggle with their giving. A writer by the name of Clara Knoll writes this. This is classic. She says, For years we lived in a small town with one bank and three churches. Early one Monday Monday morning, the bank called all three churches with the same request. Could you bring in Sunday's collection right away? We're out of one dollar bills. How sad. That's all we think of God. He's a one dollar bill God. That's what we think, it, it appears. If our giving is faith-filled, we will realize an eternal investment. A return on our investment that will be honoring to the Lord. That leads us to our third and final lesson, and that is a clear-eyed view of money. Verses 22-24, to Jesus said, The eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Some translations say God and mammon. I'll say more about that word in a moment. But Jesus is talking here about singleness of focus. That's what the eye illustration is all about. Either we have an eye for the world's pitiful offerings and the darkness and even the blindness that comes with that as we strain to see some value in what the world offers and there isn't any. Or it's an eye for the eternal that lifts up and exalts and magnifies the giving of our generous God. And with that view our understanding of God becomes crystal clear. The eyes are the window of the soul. That's what the Bible says. The eyes also reveal other things, don't they? How many of you have ever been on a red-eye flight? You know what that means, of course. Late at night, you're dead tired, but it's a good time to go. It's cheaper sometimes. Sometimes we talk about people who have sad eyes. How about sharp-eyed persons? That means they're crafty, doesn't it? Sometimes you'll hear someone say to a young child, you've got your mother's eyes. But I thought about that statement and I thought how neat it would be if we could live in such a way that people would say of Christians, you've got your father's eyes. You're looking at things the way he would. Jesus is not only interested in singleness of focus and vision, but He's also interested in singleness of ownership. A slave can only serve one master. He cannot take orders from two different masters because those orders are no doubt going to conflict or contradict. The same thing is true about being owned by God or being owned by money. The King James Version uses the word mammon. I discovered when I looked at, looked at that word, studied a little bit, that that word in the Mediterranean world was usually capitalized, capital M, 
A-M-M-O-N. And it was capitalized because it referred to a false god, the god of wealth, sometimes referred in ancient literature as the devil of covetousness. And Jesus says you can't have it both ways. You can't go after the devil of covetousness, the small g god of money, and still claim to be a follower of the real God. Singleness of ownership. It puts God in His rightful place. If we keep our eyes on Him, we won't be drawn into the world's call of the wild. Moses is a great example of what I'm talking about here. Listen to what Hebrews 11, 24-26 says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward. Moses knew where the reward was. Not in Egypt, not in its bank vaults, not in his personal belongings. The reward was in heaven. Almost a hundred years ago, Helen Lemel wrote these beautiful words. It's one of my favorite songs. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Please understand, Jesus does not in this text say that you can't have money. What He does say is, money can't have you. You can possess lots of money, but don't let money possess you. The Apostle Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 6, verses 9 and 10. Those who want to get rich... I can think of a lot of people right off the bat who fit that category. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. Why? For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil and some, by longing for it, have wandered from the faith and pierced them through pierce themselves through with many a pang. That word pang means a sudden sharp pain. And that's exactly what happens when we pursue the God of money, the devil of covetousness. Life brings a lot of pain. You'd think it'd be the other way around, wouldn't you? You'd think that uh, having lots of money and lots of things would make you feel better about yourself, but it doesn't. It brings pain. You see, it's all about what God wants for you. He doesn't need our money. Please know that. God is... He owns everything. He doesn't need our money. Rather, we need Him. And by the way, it's not more spiritual to be poor. The issue isn't how much we have or how much we give, but rather how much of us God controls as Master. If that relationship is right, then we'll have the right attitude 
toward material things. Affluence does not equate to influence spiritually. Many of God's people left behind a powerful legacy of the attitude that God would have us have about money. David Livingston, a famous missionary to Africa, said, I place no value on anything I possess except in relation to the kingdom of God. It's a good way to look at possessions and money. I want to close with this. And uh, I, I think you'll be on the same page with me here. Consider with me for a moment the value of the stuff that we collect in contrast then with how much we get for it when we put it out in the garage sale or take it to a local pawn shop. I have to be honest about myself this morning and say that I have some things I don't need. For example, I discovered yesterday that between my office here and home, I have eight combs and one hairbrush. Yeah. Like I really need that, huh? (laughs) There's so much better value in investing in eternal things. Things that will never lose their value. As opposed to hoarding up things here. Things worth more than combs even. We give because our Father in Heaven is a giver. Living the God life means I want to honor the God who has given me everything that I have or am. So that is one special way to honor our giving God is by being a giving person ourselves. He's given me so much that I can never fully repay Him, but I can lift up His name and bring honor and glory to Him and focus on His majesty by generously giving without any thought of getting credit. We're going to close the service this morning with a wonderful old hymn. And I want you to notice especially the chorus when we get to it. In the last line of the chorus in particular, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. That's our kind of God. Stand with me and sing it, will you please? When the burdens grow greater, He sendeth more strength. When the labors increase, to added affliction, He addeth His mercy to multiplied trials. His multiplied peace. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no bounds.
Pour out of His infinite riches in Jesus. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. When we have exhausted our store of endurance when our strength has failed ere the day is half done when we've reached the end of our hoarded resources our Father's full blessing is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto Grace has no measure. His power.